Welcome to the Sermon of the Week. Before you begin listening, let me pray that you would encounter God right where you are. Father, I ask that your Spirit would be present wherever people are listening. May they be aware of your presence and receptive to the voice of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you listen to this week's message. There is a name Who reigns without contention Whose power can't be questioned or contained With humble fame He rules the earth and heavens His glory knows no measure or refrain and it's bursting past the borderline of space. Jesus, enthroned upon the praises of our hearts. Jesus, you're the King and you're the center Reaching past the margins, calling sons and daughters back to him. And as he sings, we can hear the roar of heaven. His prodigals are coming home again. See that? Oh, the triumph of his name.
This power can't be questioned or contained With humble fame He rules the earth and heavens His glory knows no measure or refrain And it's bursting past the borderlines of Spain Won't you're thrown upon the praises of our hearts Jesus, you're the king and you're the center of it all And I'll say one more time, Jesus Good morning. Good morning. Um, like David said, my name's David. Uh, it's one of the requirements here for sure. Um, yeah, no, excited uh, at the opportunity um, to uh, to teach from the scriptures uh, this morning. And thanks for thanks for coming on a Labor Day weekend. Um, yeah, I'm surprised. You know, pretty good turnout and everything. You should have, but you know, you're missing out. So you have many of tomorrow off and everything. So you. Could be uh could be out uh, in the mountains of North Carolina, like I know some of you are this weekend. Um, but anyways, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna hop um, we're gonna be hopping around the scriptures this morning. Uh, so go ahead and grab your Bible uh, and open up, if you will, to First Corinthians six. So First Corinthians is uh, it's located in the back half of your Bible uh, in the New Testament, immediately after the Gospels, Acts, and Romans. But you can always just check out the table of contents as well if you need. Um, so 1 Corinthians, as well as many of the letters in the New Testament, uh, were written by a man named Paul. And prior to following Jesus, Paul was an extremely well-educated and zealous Pharisee who heavily persecuted Christians, overseeing the murder and arrest of many. He had a strong conviction that what he was doing was in line with the will of God, snuffing out this heretical faction that claimed that Jesus was God and the Messiah. You can read a lot about Paul's uh, backstory in the book of Acts, but the Lord had other plans for him. He stopped him in his tracks on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus, and the Lord met him and radically brought salvation into his life and opened his eyes to the truth of Jesus. Always a, a good reminder, that story of Paul, um, that you're, we are never too far gone. Even if your current path is moving in the exact opposite direction of the will of God, he is not done with you and desires to welcome you back into the fold with open arms. Amen. So Paul's response anyways to this encounter with the Lord was to go and tell everyone that Jesus is alive, the king and the source of salvation. As he goes from city to city proclaiming the good news, he's planting churches along the way. Churches that would consistently meet together in homes, desire to follow Jesus and see his kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, one of these communities that Paul formed was in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth, uh, you know, was and still is located on, on what's called an isthmus, which is essentially like the skinny piece of land which connects two larger pieces of lands as well as sits in between two uh, larger bodies of water. Uh, and so what typically ends up happening with areas like this is they become hubs of commerce and culture due to the fact that you have trade happening from land and sea and people are essentially forced to travel through your city. So Paul would have likely viewed the city of Corinth as a very strategic place to plant a new church. I'm sure he was aware, though, that at the time the cul- uh, their culture was deeply ingrained um, and inundated with temples and other gods and sexual promiscuity therefore ran rampant. So these sorts of acts were deeply ingrained into the religious systems of the day and how they would worship the other gods. Men would go to the local temple and have sex with a temple prostitute in in an act of worship primarily to fertility gods in order to bring about a flourishment and fertility to their crops and their spouse and their animals. So this serves as, as a good reminder, though, that in spite of all the debauchery that can take place in cities, God loves cities. That's where the people are. Like, and he loves people. So anyways, Paul spends a couple of years growing this community um, and then before setting out to go and plant other churches. But in his travels, he gets reports back that this church in Corinth maybe isn't exactly doing so hot. And he sends a few letters back and forth with the church um, to offer, we'll say, like some constructive criticism in many different areas. One of them being addressing the fact that some of the men who are now following Jesus are still continuing to practice this, this type of worship with, uh, with the temple prostitutes in the area. So go ahead and look down. Remember, we opened up the 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, speaking to this issue, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So what I can gauge from everybody's faces right now is we're all really excited to talk, talk about sexual immorality this morning. <laughs> so if you're new to MCC, I'm super glad you're here. Um, and while, you know, while that's certainly a topic that is worth spending time on, um, you'll be disappointed to hear that, unfortunately, that's not going to be the primary thing I'm chatting today. I know, I think, uh, I think Coletta's taking that one next week. Um, <laughs> but instead, I want to unpack the justification that Paul gives for why the Corinthian church should flee from sexual immorality. Now, you probably caught where he gives this, but we'll take a look at it again, starting in verse 19. So Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So this is a really common pattern that the biblical authors follow when telling their listen, the listeners what to do or what not to do. So the Bible is not a book 
that is just about, you know, telling you something to do because, because I told you so. The argument usually goes something like, this is who you are. This is your identity. Therefore, live in light of this identity that you have. Do things that align with who you actually are. So when unpacking this idea of your body being a temple, oftentimes what you hear is, hey, you know, my body's a temple. Therefore, I'm going to go work out. I'm going to eat well. Or one of my personal favorites, um, definitely I'm not going to get any tattoos. I, I, got, I, I put a meme up there. Uh, you can kind of see it. So no tattoos, thanks, my body's a temple. And meanwhile, temples, you could say, are covered in tattoos. Um, but uh, an- another, another one I saw when I, was, when I was checking it out was, you know, my, my body's not a temple. It's more of a bouncy castle um, <laughs> to, to whom it may concern. Um, but anyways, um, so while, while I would, you know, politely disagree with uh, that is the primary definition of what Paul's getting at. Um, with, uh, with the temple, um, you know, it's, it, I think it's still worth working out, but, uh, but anyways, what I'm interested in doing this morning is, is really uh, wrapping our minds around the statement of referring to believers as a temple. What's the backstory here? This temple identity that Paul calls out is not only deep, but extremely versatile as Paul uses it actually multiple t- times throughout his letters and even leveraging it earlier in this letter to the Corinthian church to address a divide going on based on the role of different leaders um, that served in their community, as well as like petty theological differences that were happening. So if we jump to 1 Corinthians 3, just a little bit before, Paul writes, You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and the other, I follow Paulos, are they not mere human beings? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So he leverages the same idea as well in the letter to the Ephesians, speaking about racial divides that were happening between Jew and Gentile. Um, So in Ephesians 2, he writes, For he, Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile them both, uh, re- reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And here it is. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple into the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling, which God lives by his spirit. Um, the temple imagery rings, rings loud. Um, and for good measure, you know, Peter gets in on the action. So this isn't just a Paul thing. Peter writes, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house, right? To be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So my point in highlighting all of these uh, different verses um, is that this is a dynamic idea that has multiple implications. So oftentimes, systematic theologians 
um, while they mean well, they want to pin Paul down as he himself in his letters, are, as if he's performing systematic theology himself, when in reality, I kind of refer to Paul more as a pragmatic theologian. He is speaking and writing to real people with real issues in their context, and he is interested in addressing those things in order for them to flourish and to follow Jesus to the fullest capacity. Now, the justifications that he makes for how followers of Jesus ought to live are steeped with sound theology, and a backdrop that oftentimes, you know, in our 21st, con- 21st century context, you know, may go unnoticed. But to the first century reader and follower of Jesus, Paul can safely assume that when he makes reference to them being the temple, the light bulb will go off and they'll say, ah, Paul, it's a great point. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. Of course, I shouldn't be sleeping with prostitutes or yeah, because we collectively are the temple. There shouldn't be any racism amongst us or divisiveness over petty issues. So our mission today then is to uncover and fully digest the meaning of Paul's reference here to the temple. Once we have that, we'll not only understand why that would be so significant for the Corinthian church, but also the implications of that reality has on us today. But before we dive into that, uh, a few thoughts on identity. So we live in a a culture that is in drastic need of of a stronger understanding of one's identity. The identity crisis is one of the major crises of our time. The world we live in preaches a message that you can make your own truth or that you are defined by what you do. But the gospel is the exact opposite of that. There is one truth and there is one truth giver. We are not defined by what we do, but in spite of what we've done. And as followers of Jesus, we've been graciously given a new identity and have the opportunity now to live into that. To live grounded in that truth is why there is a connection between grace and power. God has graciously adopted us into his family and has given us a new name. And now from that place, we can live boldly and confidently in freedom. Uh, This has been uh, one of those uh, weeks where I'm grateful for that truth. Uh, It's one of those times where a concept ceases to be conceptual and becomes very real. And I'm just glad that, uh, you know, my identity is rooted in something much more deeper than what I do. You know, Tim Keller once said, if our identity is in our work rather than Christ, success will go to our heads and failure will go to our hearts. Like I mentioned before, Paul's letters, as well as I would say the scriptures in general, utilize this type of arguing, arguing about reasoning from identity. Or it says, you know, this is who you are, therefore live in this type of way. Um, But how am I to know who I am? Where do I start with a statement like, you are the temple? So the simplest way um, I know how to put it, and I believe the Bible facilitates this type of process as well as first understanding who God is. What has this God done? And out of his actions or his words, who am I in light of that? Only at that point, once we recognize this new identity that has been given to us and that's been proclaimed over us, only at that point do we know what we ought to do. We live out of place of identity spoken over us by God. All right, so let's dive into the backstory of what Paul's getting at when he says temple. Um, there is something very clear that he intends to come to people's minds, a whole storyline and an actual building. Um, so what is Paul really getting at and what should we be hearing? Paul is writing to the Corinthians likely in the 50s AD, and Paul is a Jewish rabbi, so when he says temple, there's one thing that will immediately come to everyone's mind, and that's the temple that's sitting right in the middle of Jerusalem. 
that is the center of all Jewish life um, and politics. And there's been a temple there for over 1,000 years. But to say instead to the small community in Corinth that, no, you are the temple, is massive. In order to fully get underneath this idea, we need to, under, in, to, to understand the gravity of this statement that Paul is making. We under, need to understand his context, which is the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and their fulfillment in Jesus. So what we're going to do is, in the next few minutes, uh, we'll work through a few passages uh, to help shape the backstory for what Paul has in mind when he references the temple. And then we'll move into, spoiler alert, Jesus is the true temple, or the reality to which the temple was always pointing to. Um, and lastly, what it means for us uh, to be the temple. Sound fair? All right, cool, cool. Uh, so now it's important to note that temples, they're not unique to Israel. Almost all cultures across human history have temples or shrines that are attempted to represent this sort of sacred space, a unique space in which the divine comes and overlaps with our existence. So there's two places in the Bible where we see human and divine space fully overlapping, and that's at the bookends of the scriptures. So let's go ahead and start in the beginning. So Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the scriptures open up with the Creator God coming on the scene, creating order from chaos. This phrase used here to describe the state of the earth when God begins his creative act is tohu vavohu. Did everyone say tohu vavohu? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, the NIV, the NIV translate the, translates this formless and empty. But it can also be translated wild and waste, as that captures some of the rhyming mechanisms uh, that's being leveraged in the Hebrew. Um, but, but this is the God that we serve, the one who enters into our chaos to bring about order. And it's in Genesis 1 and 2, it goes on to describe the creative acts of God. This picture we are getting is of a unified or united heaven and earth where humans are fully enveloped by the presence of God. And the temple imagery begins amplified in verse 26, where it says, And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So to the ancient reader, the temple language here would actually be quite obvious by the fact that he places an image in the garden. An image was both a statue often used by a king to indicate an area in which his rule was effective, but also images were commonly placed inside of temples to identify the God in whose presence was filling that temple. And God says in verse 26 what it means for the image bearers to truly be in his image. That is, they are to rule and to reign, to partner with God, to take the world somewhere in accordance with his will. We know, though, that this only lasts like two pages and humans screw it up and they decide that while they like the idea of ruling and reigning, they'd rather do it in accordance with their own will, with their own wisdom versus the wisdom of God. And things start to spiral from that point on. So then from Genesis 3 to 11, we see the spiraling back into chaos. In the beginning, God creates order from chaos, but thereafter it starts, it starts to unravel and ultimately culminating in a flood 
in the type of decreation act. And out of this disorder, we come to Genesis 12 where the story gets back on track and God extends grace and adopts a man named Abraham to be the vehicle in which he, he will bestow blessing to the world. In the same way that he blessed Adam and Eve, he blesses Abraham as well. So in uh, verses 1 and 3 of Genesis 12, it says, The Lord had, uh, had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. All pers- peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God blessed Adam and Eve and called them to come alongside him to rule and to reign and to carry out his will on creation. So God blesses Abraham and gives him the mission and the promise that God's blessing would extend to all people with the mission being the reunion of heaven and earth. Now we don't have time to cover each example, but I'll, uh, I'll maybe I'll call it ho- a homework assignment. The next time you're reading through the stories of, of Abraham and Genesis, pay attention to the places that Abraham likes to set up camp. And oftentimes you'll find these callbacks to the garden where he's surrounded by trees and fruit. And it's providing these little images that there are these little pockets of heaven on earth that continue to show up wherever uh, Abraham decides to make camp. And this theme, it extends to his children and his grandchildren as well. So when we come to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, we see this picture in Genesis 28. It says, he, Jacob, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to the heavens. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Remember that part. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And here we would say, Jacob, he he almost gets it. He's so close. He understands that there is something special that God is doing, creating this gateway between heaven and earth. But the first thing we see Jacob do is he goes on after this to set up a pillar and claiming that this pillar is God's house. Um, When in reality, This is a move of God. This reality of heaven coming to earth is meant to extend outward to bless all people. It's not meant to be localized. It's meant to be mobilized, which might be a word for us today. But we continue to fast forward. Abraham's family goes from being a few generations to many generations as his family multiplies and is quite fruitful. Um, And at the end of Genesis, we actually see his family or a family member, Joseph, live into their calling to be a blessing to all nations as he serves as a conduit of God's wisdom to prevent a famine from overtaking not only Egypt, but many of the surrounding nations as well. However, despite this blessing to the nation of Egypt, after many years, a new Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites. And we know the Exodus in which God rescues his people from slavery. And in the midst of that salvation story, this rescuing out of Egypt, the Israelites pass from death into life in the crossing of the Red Sea The mission of God to bless all nations and reunite heaven and earth is still at the forefront. When we arrive in the middle of the book of Exodus, chapters 24 uh, through 26, we see what it looks like for God's presence then to set up shop right in the middle of the camp of the Israelites. In Exodus 24, it says, Moses and Aaron 
Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel and under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky, but God did not raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Don't you love that? They ate and they drank. Some people incorrectly say that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament are different, but I mean, we see Jesus constantly on his way to a meal, at a meal, or leaving the meal in the Gospels. Uh, here we just see God just, he just can't help himself. Uh, but anyways, this, this scene here is that Moses and the elders are instructed to climb the mountain in order to receive the instruction from God for the people. The idea is that they are seeing the bottom of the throne, a glimpse into heaven, a glimpse into his presence. As you read on, Moses, Moses continues the ascent into the presence of God. And amongst many of the instructions that Moses receives, a significant portion of them are dedicated to facilitating the presence of God because his desire is to come down the mountain and reside in the middle of the camp with his people. This is one of those unique things about our faith. Every other religion or system is about climbing the mountain to be with God or to reach some state of nirvana. But the Lord is the one who comes down the mountain to us. But the synopsis anyways of the instructions that Moses receives uh, is seen here in verse uh, verse 30 of chapter 26. Uh, it says, set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. So Moses is seeing the throne of God and God is essentially saying, I like the way things are, are up here. I need y'all to go ahead and make the tabernacle look pretty similar to this. Okay, follow this pattern of what my throne room looks like up here so that so then we will have in the tabernacle heaven on earth. This is why all of those boring parts in the back half of Exodus go into such great detail because each detail is serving a purpose as what's happening uh, is heaven. God's very presence is coming to earth and residing in this tabernacle. And sure enough, it works. So we look at the ending of Exodus chapter 40, the cloud covering, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Okay, is everybody still with me? All right, cool. All right, so we just, we just covered Genesis and Exodus and we've got like 64 books of the Bible left to go. All right, just kidding, just kidding. Um, but why, why, am I telling you, why am I telling you all this information? So these stories, they frame the context and the perspective that the Israelites would have as they go in and set up the temple in Jerusalem. This temple is the meeting place of heaven and earth, where the creator God has set up shop. Their identity as a people is marked by the fact that the creator God dwells in their midst and rescued them from slavery to make them his people. This is also the place where sacrifice happens, where their sins collectively and individually are forgiven, the way in which they know they are right in a right standing with God. This is Paul's context as well when he puts pen to paper, or parchment or papyrus or whatever it was. Um, not long after the tabernacle, uh, it's replaced by the temple in Jerusalem built by Solomon. So the people of God, essentially, they, they forget the plot soon after. Instead of being a blessing to the nations around them, they become just like them, not only serving other gods, but also carrying out injustice on their own people. And when we read the prophets of the Old Testament, 
This is what they are speaking out against and calling people to repent. For if they don't, a day of the Lord is coming in which the result will be exile from the land. But exile does come. And even it gets so bad that we read in the beginning of the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel has this vision that the throne of God is no longer in the temple and that it's actually left and is hanging out and visiting Ezekiel in Babylon. And as you read further along, some Israelites were allowed to return from exile back into Jerusalem. But one of the markers for many Israelites to truly determine whether or not they were actually technically still in exile would be if the presence of God returned to the temple. This is why uh, when you see the second temple beginning to be built um, in, in the book of Nehemiah, this is why the elders are weeping as they know that God's presence has not come back into this temple and they are still in exile. So the prophets called out the people of Israel for becoming fixated on a building instead of the reality to which this building was pointing. You believe you have this relationship with God because this building exists here in Jerusalem, but you don't know that it's here to remind you of the God that's pursuing you, who desires to make a people for himself that will extend his blessing to all nations and to bring about heaven on earth. This God is desiring to draw near to you, providing the way to reconciliation if you completely miss the point. And into this reality and this tension, this is when Jesus enters the scene. When he shows up, the second temple time period is in full effect. Um, and many feel, you know, despite there are some that recognize the spirit of God has not come back in, there are many that feel, hey, you know, we have the temple, so God must be with us and everything must be great. But Jesus comes preaching on this topic in a similar manner to the prophets before him. Uh, but you can go to uh, open up to the gospel uh, according to John and first look at how, uh, how John introduces Jesus coming onto the scene. So John opens up saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John specifically uses this language of in the beginning to call back to Genesis 1. This is the creator God entering into and becoming a part of his creation, binding himself to humanity. Then if you look down and we go down a little further into verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So that word dwell there in the Greek is actually the same word for the word tabernacle. So verse 14 could literally be translated as the word tabernacled among us. Here is the walking, talking union of heaven and earth. But this reality keeps expanding as we see an interaction later on in this uh, first chapter of John between him um, and his soon-to-be disciple Nathaniel. So Nathaniel is amazed at the fact that this Jesus, he knows his character and he knew that he had been sitting under some fig tree earlier. Um, but, uh, but Jesus says in, uh, in verse 50, Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
So remember in, G- in Genesis, when Jacob had the dream of the angels ascending and descending in that spot, Jacob wanted to hunker down because he believed that he had found some gateway to heaven. But this gateway was always meant to be mobile. As you read on throughout the Gospels, everywhere Jesus goes, you are seeing heaven touch down and overlap with earth with each interaction that he has. Now, remember the temple in Jerusalem that's still there. That is supposed to be the heaven and earth space, right? And so when Jesus comes on the scene doing this thing, there is some serious conflict. The religious leaders who run and are in and around the temple day in and day out, they're not a big fan of of anything that would distract or, God forbid, usurp the role of the temple. And this is one of the main threads that you can trace really throughout all four Gospels is this conflict between Jesus and the temple in Jerusalem. See, Jesus is the walk, is walking around, breaking the Sabbath, forgiving sin, or breaking the Sabbath and forgiving sins, claiming the unclean had been purified, even taking a whip out in the next chapter in John um, into the temple courts and completely disrupting the entire sacrificial system, which is what takes, yeah, like I said, is what takes place in that, uh, in that next chapter. Um, and he says things like, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So by Jesus' words and his actions, he's saying that this building is no longer serving its purpose. The true temple is now here to fulfill the reality to which the tabernacle and the temple were always pointing. And he points to his death and his resurrection as the construction of that temple. In his death, all of humanity's sinfulness is dealt with. Jesus absorbs all of the worst of humanity and the greatest weapon of darkness, death itself, and takes it upon himself. He lets it do his worst to him. The creator God becomes weak, taking all of this onto himself, and he wins. He rises from the dead, defeating sin and death. What the sacrificial system in the temple was always pointing towards, reconciliation, Jesus takes upon himself once and for all. Jesus is the the walking, talking space where heaven and earth overlap and there is reconciliation with our creator. And Jesus promises that he will send out his spirit. He gives us his personal presence so that those who cling to Jesus in faith are then also the temple, are also the place where heaven and earth overlap. You see, you and I, we are sacred space. All of this is what's loaded into the meaning of Paul when he's calling the church in Corinth God's temple. That their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If this is your identity, of course you're not going to be sleeping around. Of course you're not going to let petty theological differences or race divide you. So a few things as we, uh, as we kind of start to, to wrap up here. Um, I mentioned earlier kind of this, this helpful formula in how you determine your identity from scripture and therefore how you should live in light of your identity. But the first part of it is recognizing the identity giver. Who is God and what has he done? Within this temple theme, God is the creator who has intended to make a world in which heaven and earth are united and overlap and that his image bearers were partner with him to bring about his will on creation. And what this God has done, despite the fact that his image bearers have rebelled and he doesn't is that he doesn't give up on them. In fact, he doubles and even triples down in the pursuit of fallen individuals. 
He truly unites himself with humanity by becoming flesh. As John puts it, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is the God that we serve and who so loved the world that he became human to not stand aloof, but to get his hands dirty and dive right into the midst of it. This is the God who gives us identity, who defines each one of us at our core and values us immensely as his pursuit of us in this life, in his life, death, and resurrection have made clearly evident. And to those who say yes and amen and grab a hold of Jesus, he gives his spirit, his empowering presence, and says, you are a temple. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Our body and our life is now shared space with the spirit of God. And a temple is a holy space. There's, a, there's an elevated level of holiness that is required. It's a, it's a pretty high bar. You know that whole be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect thing. So uh, in Acts 5, uh, it's the story of, of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, it's one of those really tough passages in the New Testament. Um, now, I, I definitely don't have time to, to dissect that all of, all of that piece today. Um, but if you want a little bit of homework, uh, go and read that story. In Acts 5. And read as well, um, you know, if you can find it, Leviticus 10. So it's this passage of, of Nadab and Abihu um, entering the temple um, in a manner that, uh, that, that was out of line. Um, and in light of the church now being called the temple, see what kind of lesson in holiness we can learn. Um, maybe what Acts 5 is intending to communicate to us. So I'm not, I'm not saying uh, for those, you know, first who know the story that any one of us is going to get like that. The next time we sin, um, but uh, but we have to take serious that our life is shared space with the Holy Spirit. Sin desires, as we talked about today, sin desires to put us in chains and enslave us. But as we sang this morning, there is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. But don't leave this morning shackled. Come to Jesus and find freedom. And lastly. The temple is the place where heaven touches down on earth. And when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there's a part of that where we're calling on God to come down um, and to bring his kingdom and to radically change our surroundings. But in making us both corporately and individually his temple, we too are meant to be walking, talking, heaven on earth spots. Okay. Are we asking God? Are we seeking out the opportunities to say, God, where are you wanting heaven to invade earth today? Send me, send me to the lost, to the hurting, those who are in dire need of reconciliation with the father. You know, as, as Robert uh, prayed to close out worship, pray that God make us a chain breaking army. Let's go. Um, but that start as, as what was done in the temple as we offer our lives first and foremost as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Um, but live into that. We, you know, he said, he said we were a temple. This is shared space with the Holy Spirit and it's an absolute honor. May we live in light of that, that fact. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we thank you that you're, you're so wise. Uh, you intended 
you are making a world in which your space and our space is fully united. You have won the battle. The war is yours. You are the victor. We know it's coming, but you have given us the opportunity to partner with you to say, hey, God, where, where does heaven need to invade? Where is that space right now? And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to do that, Lord. We desire for your will to come. We desire for the lost to be found. We desire for those areas in our life where we still struggle with sin, that you would come in and heaven invade that place. Purify us, O God, because we know that your level of holiness is the way into true life. God, we thank you uh, that you will, uh, you will carry it to completion, Lord, that you are a good father, that you love us, you desire what is best for us, Lord. Um, and we thank you, God, that you have called us a temple. It's, ah, such a high calling. Over, we thank you that you have, uh, you reside in us uh, to carry that out to completion. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to our Sermon of the Week. If you live in the Charlotte area, we encourage you to worship with us on Sundays at 10 a.m. We encourage you also to give to this ministry so we can continue spreading the gospel to our city and throughout the world. You can go to our website at missioncommunity.cc, click on the Give button, and the rest is simple. Have a great rest of your week. God bless.